if you look at the title, the message is called, What is Baptism? And that is what we will be speaking on, asking the question, what is baptism? Sunday school teacher, am I on? Okay, Sunday school teacher um, asks his Sunday school class the same question, what is baptism? And little boy raised his hand and says, I know, I know, I know. And the teacher said, all right, what is baptism? And he says, it's when the pastor holds a person under water to make them think about Jesus. <laughs> well, that's actually not the correct answer. But if you look at many different religions and many different um, perspectives on baptism, everybody has their own perspective, religion, doctrine in regards to baptism. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what does Jefferson Baptist believe that the Bible says about baptism, what is it, and why is it performed is, is, why we're, is, why we're gonna, is what we're going to look at today. So let's just be very, very clear. What is baptism? Number one, baptism is an outward sign of an inward commitment to Jesus. It's an outward sign of an inward commitment to Jesus. A couple weeks ago, or actually it was last week, I celebrated uh, 24 years of being married. And I'll never forget the proposal time. Uh, My wife and I were at a crossroad on whether we should get married or not, whether we should break up or or get married, you know, because we weren't going to continue to play the the dating game. And and, uh, at this crossroad, which way are we going to go? And um, so sure enough, I said, you know what? I think I'm just going to, I'm going to marry her. And it's a big decision, spend the rest of your life together. So I went down, I bought a ring, and she had, she had no idea. So there was no wondering if we're going to get married or not. I mean, this is going to be a shock to her system when I proposed. And we were out in the Filbert Orchard behind my in-law's house, and we went to, uh, for a walk. And as we were walking out there, I um, noticed a couple trees that were missing in the Filbert Orchard. And said, hey, let's sit down right here so we can mark the spot. So sure enough, we marked the spot of where I was going to propose, knowing that this was going to change my life and her life forever, if she said yes. But uh, so we sat down and, and then we started talking to each other and, and I just kind of came up with some lines. It's just like, I just want you to know you changed my life um, and I love you. You've changed my heart. Um, you're absolutely amazing. I just kind of gave her a whole bunch of different compliments and she's just sitting there looking at me as I was talking to her. And then I pulled out the ring and says, will you marry me? And, and uh, she said, she said, yes. We were there by ourselves. It was done by ourselves. Nobody else was around. That's when the proposal took place. And we made that commitment to get married. But then six months later, what we did is we had a whole 350 people show up. We had 350 people show up, and we proclaimed this wedding to say, we are now joining together husband and wife with all the witnesses that were in the room. Well, that's what baptism is. Baptism first of all, is an inward commitment and salvation. You do it just between you and God. God, please come into my life. God, I am sorry for my sins. God, I repent for my sins, and I want salvation. It's an inward commitment. But then baptism is a proclamation to the large crowd that I've made this inward commitment. Here's a sentence that changed the world. Acts 2, 38, Peter gives a sermon. And then when he gives a sermon, they were cut to the heart, cut to the quick of what do we need to do? And this is Peter's answer. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Just two things, repent and then be baptized. Let's ask the question what this repent is, because this is the inward sign of what a believer. Repentance comes in a form of five different ingredients, according to Thomas Watson. It is the sight of sin, the sorrow of sin, the shame of sin, the hatred of sin, and the turning of sin. So when you look at this word repentance, whenever you stand in front of God, uh, there's a revelation of yourself that appears. Whenever you stand in front of a holy God, you don't see God, you see yourself. We see that all the way through Scripture. Moses, 
He goes, God, I don't want to continue to believe unless I can see you face to face. I want to see my eyes to look right into your face and gaze into your glory. Therefore, show me your glory. Reveal yourself to me. And what did God respond to that? God says, if I show you my face, you will die. You will be killed. Why? Because holy, holy, holy is God's name. So therefore, a sinful individual like myself look into a holy God it would destroy me just like it would destroy Moses. So just to complete that story, God says, I will display all my glory and you'll be able to see my back. And then after God revealed Moses' back, what Moses' face was just shining with glory, shining with holiness, shining with beauty. But his face, you could not look at. Why couldn't you look at his face? Because Moses was a sinful individual. Isaiah was another person who saw God. He walked into the temple the year that King Uzziah died. We walked into the temple. God was in the temple. What did Isaiah do? Did Isaiah just raise up his hands and start worshiping in his glory? Absolutely not. Isaiah fell on his face. And his words that were cried out as, woe is me. I am ruined. I'm an unclean person with unclean lips. And I live among people with unclean lips. And my eyes have then seen the king. He was destroyed and ruined as a person when he stood in front of a holy God. Peter also had an experience when he was on the boat, all of a sudden all his fish started being caught. When all his fish started being caught, Peter had a realization who he was standing in front of. He was standing in front of God. And he looked at Jesus and what he says, he says, get away from me. Depart from me. Because Peter saw himself when he saw God. Peter saw himself when he saw God. He saw the sight of sin he had. He saw the sorrow of sin, the shame of sin, the hatred of sin. And then all of a sudden there's this piece of I've got to turn away from sin because I'm standing literally in front of of holiness. When you look at a holy God, you see yourself, and this is what yourself says. God, I can't save myself. God, I am helpless. God, I'm dead. God, I'm in need. God, I beg for your forgiveness. See, what happens is repentance is not just a verbal thing. Repentance is an emotional thing. Repentance is when God intervenes for salvation because it says that God draws people. The way that he draws people, he shows holy, 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 and it does nothing more than break us in front of God. Because why? We see ourselves and we see it, and as soon as we see it, our heart is moved that I am ruined just like Isaiah. I can't save myself. I can't help myself. I am dead. I am in need, and I need forgiveness. A deep sense of repentance takes place. And then what do we have after that? We have an answer. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died. He rose again. And he did it all for the salvation for you. And then when you receive that gift, what happens? When you repent, what takes place? You're no longer an individual. You are completely dependent on God. You're in love with God because you just saw what he did for you. And when you see what he did for you, there's an emotional response to him that makes you in love with him because of the sacrifice he gives. Adoration takes place. Commitment takes place. Communion takes place. Obedience, worship, service. There's something that's so powerful that happens inside of you. It's called salvation. You stood in front of God. You saw yourself and you saw nothing but ugly. You break before God and say, God, please save me. And then he gives you the answer. You can be saved because of what I have done specifically for you. A sentence that changed the world. 3,000 people were repented. And then the next thing, be baptized. Peter said, repent and then be baptized. Why would you be baptized? What is the reason for baptism? 
Well, reason for baptism is that you're saved at repentance because you believe that Jesus died, rose again for you. Now you're just going to make the statement to yourself and to the world that this is what you're going to identify with. That this is what you're going to identify with. I am a new person, dependent love, adoration because of my repentance, a new person because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, people went into the water to literally make that statement and then come out again that this is what has saved me. Romans 6, 3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Number two, baptism illustrates a believer's identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Let's just look at the picture of baptism. Baptism is going to take place next week. And what will you do? You'll see people standing in the water. Now, as they're standing in the water, they're not going to say anything. There will be a a time of testimony where they'll get behind the mic and they will speak and they'll give the testimony of when they repented and when they found Jesus. But then they'll be standing in the water and nothing is said except maybe I baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we dunk them under and then we lift them up. What What is taking place? Something major is being said without words. It is a word picture. The word picture is somebody standing in the water. They are the, when they go into the water, it's a signifying the death and burial of Jesus. And then when they come out of the water, what does it signify? The resurrection of Jesus. The death, burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, there is a massive statement that is being proclaimed in baptism when no words are being spoken. There is a massive statement that is being proclaimed when a baptism takes place when no words are being spoken. My best baptism story, and you've probably heard it before, was when I went to Liberia, and I ended up baptizing 27 different people. And they all went through classes. They all knew what baptism were before I showed up, but they were waiting for me to come over there to baptize. And um, so sure enough, I showed up, and uh, we had a whole congregation with 27 people ready to get baptized. I preached a sermon, opened up the Word of God, talked about baptism, and then we went down to the creek. And we went down to the creek, uh, 27 people, they just all got in a single file line. <laughs> they just organized, say, oh, everybody get in a single file line. And, and African baptisms are different than American baptisms in one way, that they're very loud. There's lots of energy, lots of excitement. They have the drums that are bongoing. They have the whole worship team that are sitting there praising and giving glory. And then whenever people go down and people go up, everybody just screams. And it's just, it's a very charismatic. It's not necessarily a Baptist, you know, baptism. It's a, a charismatic bapt, um, baptism, which is, which is pretty cool. So sure enough, 27 people, I got in the water. Here comes one, here comes two, here comes three. I would just dunk them, I'd dunk them, and singing was taking place one after another, after another, after another. And about 17, 18, I was thinking, you know, I'm just getting tired. <laughs> you know, how, how many more? I look at the line. How many more do we have left? I'm just getting exhausted. But as I was just dunking, nobody was saying anything. There was a lady that was on the worship team, and she was actually playing the bongo drums. She threw the drums out away from her. She fell on the ground and she started screaming as her eyes rolled in the back of her head, stop it, stop it, stop, 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 stop. And she went into convulsions. And I didn't deal with her. I just continued to, you know, baptize people and we just didn't miss a beat. But other people from our mission and also other Africans started uh, working with her as she was laying on the ground screaming, uh, stop. To make a long story short, um, you know, after that took place, we got information that um, she was a hypocrite. There's a lot of demon worship that takes place in Liberia and uh, in Africa, and uh, she worships both. You know, that she worships 
demons, and she also worships God. When it's time to worship God, American shows up. Yeah, let's just do this. Let's be in the worship team. And uh, so it just explained that um, she was um, kind of uh, held on to both of those. But made a shock to my system when I saw all that. And the reason why it made a shock to my system is because there was no words being spoken. All there was was people going in the water and out of the water, in the water and out of the water. And I just thought afterwards and said, you know, when people are going in the water and out of the water and that voice is being proclaimed so loud, God is there in a way that is very, very powerful. And when God is there in that way that is very, very powerful, Satan is not. And hypocrisy even breaks in that process. And so every time I dunk somebody, I think, I think of that story, thinking God is there in a way that is extremely rich, watching people make that powerful statement of their life that I will go into the water and then I will come out of the water in baptism. What is that saying? It is saying this, in 1 Corinthians, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day. Those are the worst words that Satan can hear, and whenever he hears them, he flees, he reacts, he gets mad, emotional things take place with him. Christ, he died. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day. This is what baptism is. Colossians 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So here we have Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He raised again. And then you look at Colossians 12, having been buried with him in which you were also raised with him in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That statement is being proclaimed that I am following that. And when that statement is being proclaimed, power is happening. Number three, baptism illustrates the death of an old nature and the rising again of a new nature. Every single one of us have pasts. And uh, pasts are very powerful. History, looking back. Very powerful and uh, um, very consuming and very controlling. Uh, The reason why our past carries so much power is because uh, sin has taken place in your past. I don't know about you unless you're perfect, which the Bible says you're not. I'm not perfect. So I look at my past, and through my past there is sin after sin after sin from me and sin after sin after sin from others. And what happens is that completely messes you up as as a human being. As the sin continues to take place during time, it is completely and entirely messing you up. And the reason why is because sin poisons anything that it touches. Sin destroys everything that it comes in contact with. And sin sucks the life of what, out of whatever it embraces. So if I choose to sin, people are going to pay. If I choose to commit adultery, my wife will pay. My children will pay. You will pay. People will pay. There's always a payment that takes place in sin. And that's why our past is so heavy and so burdensome. Because all through those years, sin has taken place, taken place, taken place. And it is literally messing us up and messing everybody else up in the process. Our past carries an extreme effect on us as human beings. I mean, think about this. An absent father or mother, does it have any effect? This was not your sin, it was their sin, but it still had a massive effect on you. Verbally abusive parents, living with alcoholic parents, living with divorced parents, going through a nasty divorce, physical abuse, sexual abuse. These are other people's sins, but it's still having a major effect on you. And the effect that it's having on you is an increased sin in your life because then you get anger, you get bitter, and it starts to snowball and starts to get worse. And the things that happen to you, you start doing it to your family, and then it gets worse. If you are abused, the chances of you abusing are higher and higher and higher. You see how the past, the history has a major impact 
on every single one of us. It has an impact on every single one of us. We start to ask, is there any way I can just start over? Is there any way I can just get rid of the past? Is there any way I can just say goodbye to the past and start over? And the answer is yes, and it's called being born again. And baptism is making that statement. It's making that statement that the old nature, the past, all the sin that has taken place, those who sinned against me and the sin that I did is done away with. My old nature is gone and I'm rising again into a new nature where I can have a new heart, a new mind, a new worldview, a new purpose, a new mission, a new outlook. And I can say new, 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 everything in Christ. If somebody comes and asks for marriage counseling, the first thing we got to do is we got to get rid of the past because all the past is the reason why their marriage is literally being destroyed with the, from the inside. It's like if they do not know Christ, let's find Christ. We can have, be a new creature, a new, uh, create, um, a new creature in Christ. And let the past go. Forgive. Let it go so you can have a healthy marriage starting from here on out. Romans 6 says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have what? A new life that I can be absolutely brand new again and no longer let the past control me. To be able to release it, to be able to forgive it and let it be completely and entirely gone. The word baptize, the Greek word baptize is baptizo. And uh, what it means is it means it's a, a picture of what they used to do, take their shirts and take cloth and take their blankets. And what they'd do is they'd have their vat full of dye and full of liquid, and they'd take the, the blanket and the cloth, they'd put it in there into this vat of dye. And then when they pull out, it would be the color of the dye, whether red, whether blue, whatever that is. And that's what they would get the word baptizo. And that's where we get the word baptism. What's taking place is you're taking something that is white, something that's just cloth, you're putting it in there, and then when you put it in there, in the diet, you go under, what's taking place? You're being changed. You're being completely brand new, and you come out a complete, entirely different color. What's taking place is your past is gone. I'm a brand new person. I can start over. I can be brand new in this process. First, Second Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Number four, baptism is a brand signifying that you are the property of God. My wedding ring signifies that there is no other woman in my life, and there will be no other woman in my wife, in my life, um, except my wife. It's just I'm branded. This I made commitments, and my wedding ring shows it. Baptism is a symbol that says there's no other God in my life. The God that I love, the God that I'm committed to, the God that is my Savior and my Lord is the God who went into the grave and then came out of the grave through resurrection. That is my God. Now, when you look at um, the early church, when you look at the early church, the disciples were pledging allegiance to, to God. And what were they pledging allegiance to? They're pledging allegiance to the salvation message, which says Jesus died and Jesus rose. So they would repent and say, please forgive me of my sins, because all of us knew we needed our sins forgiven, mostly the Jews, because they've read the Old Testament. Their sins need to be forgiven. But what you're doing is you're repenting. Jesus, you're the one. 
And the reason why you're the one is because you died and you rose. And so they made that statement, and after they made that statement, what happened to them? They're crucified. They were persecuted. They were murdered. They were destroyed because they're making this powerful statement that Jesus is what I'm identifying with. Jesus died and Jesus rose. So if you look at the persecution, why were the Jews so adamant to persecute people? The reason why, or to persecute Christians, the reason why the Jews were so adamant about persecuting Christians is because they worshiped a man as God. And if you all look all the way through the New Testament, what do you see? You see Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. Well, this is unacceptable that a man is God, and it's really unacceptable that a man would die, go into a grave. Now, the Jewish history, everything would have been all right as long as he stayed dead. But because he didn't stay dead, it woke everything up. And it starts to even make them question, maybe he is God. What's taking place? Because people saw him after his resurrection. And so it threatened their religion. It threatened the Old Testament God on on Mount Sinai that carried power, that carried strength, that carried glory, that carried the skies and the stars. All those things that were so huge all of a sudden became a man, died, and then rose. But then the early church, the Christians said, this is the Savior of the world. And I pledge allegiance to them, and it was unacceptable for the world. Because why? Death, burial, and resurrection of a man who was God, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as also there were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, which is God the Father who is over all, and through all, which is God the Son is through all, and in all, which is God the Holy Spirit. Doctrine of baptism is that Jesus, or the doctrine of Christianity is that Jesus is God, and the picture displays he died, he rose, and that is the only reason that we can be saved. Number five, baptism is a brand signifying that you are the property of Christ's church. We live in a world where we like to take credit for being individuals. John Wayne was an individual that would conquer armies. As long as you could be on John Wayne's side, everything was going to be okay. But all of our movies make that statement. Individuals are the ones that are leading to victory consistently. I'm an individual. I'm somebody that can conquer myself. I'm something that can do it myself. I'm something that can complete it myself. Look at me. It has been done. But we are not self-made individuals. We are a product of our community. We are not self-made individuals. We are a product of our community. In other words, our community makes us or our community breaks us. The product of our family community, the product of our work community, the product of our friend community, and Jesus knew that we were product of our community, therefore he built the church, and therefore we should be the product of our church community. And baptism is signifying that you are being a property of Christ's church. 1 Corinthians 12, the, pro- the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. We're watching the news very closely. Many people are. Many people just shut it off, but as we're watching the news, one thing that just keeps on coming in your face is that word race. I, I hate to even, scary to even say the word race that, that, that comes out. And uh, what does the Bible say um, about race? Well, that passage gives exactly what the Bible says. 
about race. And uh, it just gets two lines. Number one, there is only one race, and it's called the human race. There's only one race, it's called the human race. And you have to ask the question. The human race will go two different directions. Those who believe in Jesus Christ and are baptized, and those who refuse Jesus Christ and are baptized. And that is the call from the Bible to make our focus when we watch the news, not get wrapped up into race, but to say there's one race, a human race, Am I baptized? Do I believe? Or am I not? And my focus has to be to leave this church and tell the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ to everybody I come in contact with to see if they are believers in Jesus Christ and if they are baptized. And that is a focus that every believer should have. So as the news posts all these things and goes all these different directions, we're not supposed to get wrapped up in it because God gives us an extreme focus extreme focus in a lost world, and that is supposed to connect us to this mission. For we were all baptized in one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Number six, baptism is the first commandment that Christ gives you when you accept him. When my wife and I were raising kids, you know, we sat down and said, well, we're going to have these children in our house. Um, and we're going to raise them, and um, we're concerned about raising them. And, and so we read all the books we can possibly read. But one thing that we made a decision on is that we've got to have very few rules. And the reason why is because if you have a lot of rules, um, they're going to disobey them all. <laughs> and uh, so we said, let's just make up a couple rules that are just going to be prominent in our raising our kids. So we had two prominent rules. These were rules that you just, we just did not want our children to break. Um, in fact, we were consumed with the rules. It was on our forefront of our mind every time we disciplined. Um, and every time we looked at our kids, th- these two rules were on our mind. And, and number one of the rules was do not lie. Just don't want you to lie. Whenever you speak to me, I want truth to always come out of your mouth. I remember spankings that our kids did not get because they said, I will tell you the truth. And they completely told us the truth and said, well, then I could focus. Since you told the truth, I believe that you're doing okay with this. We can get past this and didn't give them the spank. Of course, you know, I kept an eye on it, make sure that next time they won't do it again. But don't lie was a major overriding rule. And the next rule is always talk to us. Always talk to us. Talk to us when you're growing up. Talk to us what's going on in school. Talk to us when you're dating. Just consistently talk to us. Don't lie and don't talk to us. Now, little did they know that if they complete those two rules, we get to walk with them through life. We get to walk with them through life. Because as they're consistently talking to us, we consistently give the little instructions that are taking place um, in their life right then. So don't lie and consistently talk to us. Now, when you become a Christian, what takes place? God gives two different rules. Number one, repent and be baptized. That was the two different rules that he has given us. Why would he give us those two different rules? Repent brings us right to him and be baptized is saying, I am going to stay next to you because of that, the death, burial, and resurrection. And it shows that every single step of the way, God is completely and entirely there in every single situation. Acts 2 When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. Just two things. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What happens when you're baptized? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when you repent and be baptized. But what does the Holy Spirit do? It lives in 
you and walks with you and talks to you and works alongside of you. See what's taking place is we have live in a crazy world. You know, we live in this crazy world. Repent and be baptized. God says, I want to walk with you. That's why these two rules are given. That's why these two commands are given. Repent, be baptized are the two greatest, two greatest commands. Number seven, if you profess to being a believer and have not been baptized, you should get baptized. Now, as you look at the doctrine and the theology of baptism, we ask the question, who should get baptized? Um, how many sins do you um, not have to have before you get baptized? How good do you have to be before you get baptized? Well, the answer is it takes two qualifications. Or actually, I'd say one qualification. Number one, the one qualification is repent. Come to God. When you come to God, you will see your sin. And salvation is going to take place when you see your sin because you will be lost, needing to be found when you look at a holy, holy God, broken before him and say, God, please save me because I'm absolutely nothing and I need the salvation of you. And then what takes place, that's salvation. Next thing that takes place is baptism. When? Immediately, right afterwards. Acts 2.41, those who accepted this message were then baptized, repent, and then they were baptized, just directly after. Simon himself believed, and then he was baptized. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him that the good news about Jesus, as they were traveled along the road, so Peter is talking to him, this eunuch, when he's traveled along the road. As they're traveling along the road, all of a sudden, he becomes a Christian. The eunuch becomes a Christian. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why, should I, why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to instantly stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the river, to the water, and were baptized, by, and it was baptized by him. It was just immediately. I became a Christian, and, and then I was baptized. Acts twenty-two sixteen. And now when you de- do not delay, arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, when I talk about children, um, um, that's up to the parents. It's up to a person in regards to their child. They accept Jesus Christ at four, accept Jesus Christ at six. That's a young age to say, well, should I get baptized? The dynamics of that will consistently grow in them as they love Jesus. I, we waited until our children were 12, just because one of those dynamics to grow and make that decision. Um, but it's up to you. It's up to your child of when to get baptized. But I'm speaking to an adult that if you've been saved, you should just be baptized. If you are saved, you've repented you should be baptized. And why do you delay? Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, and call consistently on your name. The command is repent, be baptized. And the question would be, I've repented, have I been baptized? Directly after this service, there's a baptism meeting at 10 o'clock. It's just directly, or 1015, it's directly across at the discipleship center. I just want you to contemplate it. I want you to think about it. Have I been baptized? Well, maybe it's time to get baptized. There's a lot of things that will be preventing you from it, but those things are worthless. And what I mean is those things are worthless is you might be thinking, oh, then I have to get in front of people and tell my testimony. Everybody out there is for you. Everybody wants to hear you. Everybody wants to listen to your testimony. Everybody wants to see what God has done in your life. So don't let that be a barrier. Don't let fear be a barrier. Don't let anything be a barrier to this command that God has given us. God, we just um, thank you, God, for this church body. Thank you for every person that is here. And God, I just pray that the gospel will drive every person who is a believer. I just pray that those who accepted Christ, God, would be motiva- motivated um, by you, driven by you, sent by you, and that gospel, God, would be the driving force of their life. 
God, I pray for those who have accepted you and who have not been baptized. I just pray, God, that they would make the step to be baptized, uh, that they would proclaim to the world that they believe in you, that they believe in you, and that they have repented. God, we just thank you for the gift of salvation, and I just pray that we will tell the entire world about salvation with our mouth, with our life, and through baptism. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.